Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Transform TV podcast series. Today, we are joined by Kelly Hines, who is Procurement Sustainability and Compliance Officer over at Roche. Now, we're going to be discussing a lot of things today. We're going to be talking about sustainability, responsible procurement, uh, and we're really going to be talking about an organization here that at the moment is one of the world's leading healthcare companies and also a company that has been rated very highly on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index uh, for uh, sustainability. So let, let's, let's, hello, hello, Kelly, how are you? Hello, Maria, I'm well, how are you? I'm good, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, especially I know you're dialing in from California. I'm here in the UK. Um, so let's talk first about your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey so far. Sure. Um, as you said, I, I work for Roche, so I lead our sustainability and risk focus on procurement. So looking at all of our suppliers, we have a annual spend of 18.6 billion Swiss francs with over 60,000 suppliers. And as Roche, we have over a hundred sites. So that gives you an idea of the, the remit and the scope. But what my team is actually designed to do is operationalize all of the theory of what is supplier resilience, what is supplier sustainability, and create workable operations around that, frameworks, tools, business processes, so that we don't just make kind of these empty high-level promises about greenhouse gas reduction or human rights protection, but so that we're actually using the power that we have to create change. Um, and, and how I got into this has been kind of a, a long journey. When I first started out, I always thought I wanted to be an attorney. So my education is in legal studies and I've got a minor in the rhetoric of genocide because I wanted to not just understand how you use the law as a tool, but what rules actually mean and, and how it changes communities and systems and the economy. So it's looking at what happens when you operationalize it, not just staying with theory. And this has been, um, I've been able to translate it into a career because what I do now with my team, if you remove all of the buzzwords and everything else, is we are designing systems and processes to lead to a specific human behavioral outcome. And that's of course, ethical behavior and procurement, but it is also looking at the world through a much bigger lens. When we're doing business as Roche, when we're looking at our suppliers, how can we change the world? I mean, that sounds very high level. And I am not only in California, I'm in Berkeley. So <laughs> I'm very hardcore on my, my actual sustainability uh, diet in the wool, but, to really change things, you have to be practical. But I, I love what you said at the, when you were explaining yourself, how you operationalize uh, some of these things, because there's so much theory, right? There's so much talk. Absolutely. There's so many organizations that are all over social media, all over all media with things that they're claiming, but how many are actually operationalizing that in a consistent way? And I think that's, that's why it's really interesting that you're here to talk to us about this. But let, let, let's get to, to what I just mentioned when I did a bit, a bit of, of an introduction with you. Um, Roche has been number one on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index for 11 of the last 12 years. So it seems like sustainability is something you guys are really committed to doing. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the work you've done in this area and what you're doing? Absolutely. So, you know, 
Roche is heavily committed before it became a thing in the 1950s, our founding family. So Roche still has founding family members on the board. The, the company is 125 years old this year, but they have been heavily passionate about sustainability and protecting the environment for quite some time. So in the 50s, uh, the grandfather of a current board member helped found the World Wildlife Fund. Oh, okay. And wow. Yeah. And, and so it's like de deeply embedded, deeply embedded, which makes this kind of the perfect operating model is as Roche, because when they look at, you know, the, the sustainability topics, they always want support from the top. Well, we have support from the board of directors um, with Dow Jones. It was one of the tools that uh, Andre Hoffman, who's one of those family members, used to inspire and move the actual organization into operationalizing sustainability. Because I think it was 15 years ago when the Dow Jones Sustainability Index rankings first came out, um, they opened it up and, and Roche was somewhere below the, the top five. And Mr. Hoffman said, this isn't gonna stand. So, you know, he picks up the bat phone and gets the, the, the corporate executive committee members on the phone and the board of directors and says, okay, it is now gonna be a part of every single Roche employee's bonus that we stay within the top three on Dow Jones. So it will wow. go into all of our modifiers. And since that point in time, it has, there has been a sustainability metric that goes into all of our annual performance. Um, just last year, it switched over to environmental footprint reduction, but the, the goal was, okay, the Dow Jones has a, a framework for sustainability that looks across an organization and very good metrics that they're having. So let's start there because we didn't have any anything else. Um, it was a new topic back then. And we started with that and then we have since expanded it greatly. So not only our internal operations, but then looking into our, our value chain and how can we go about really living and implementing these goals? Because that's what the we want to do as Roche. We have a responsibility to make sure that we're not just doing what our patients need, but what our patients need in the communities that we're in. And when you have an organization this size, that's a lot of power if you think about it, because we also have big friends. Um, for me, I got into sustainability on the procurement side, I think eight years ago now. <laughs> I've, I've lost all track of time since COVID. And the, the first really impactful project that I got to work on that meant something to me started with a question. So our chief procurement officer, Marielle Bayer, has always had a, a passion for human rights topics. And she, at the time in 2017, she reached out to the head of supply chain for North America and they were just having a conversation, but it turned out the head of supply chain, her husband was going to Stanford and getting his degree in slavery. Right. So looking at the system. So they said, well, does Roche have modern slavery? Do we have a risk for it in our supply chain? And we're biologics, right? So you, you don't think of, huh, well, no. Why we're not working in, you know, agriculture, we're not working in clothing, we, we can't have this risk, but it was still a question. And so what uh, a question, guess, by the way, that most companies would be very terrified of asking. Yeah, and, and I think that we were, there was a lot of pushback, but I got to lead this project that just looked for it. So we had an intern that ended up mapping the entire supply chain for one of our marquee products. 
So this product has 126 components, which means 126 tier one suppliers. We mapped it down to tier 10 plus. Wow. All the way. And um, at the bottom of one of the components, there is cassava farming in Thailand. And we know that most of that labor comes from Laos and Cambodia under false labor contract. They're told they're going to be working in the fishing industry and nope, yeah. you're going here and, and you're going to be held there by armed guard. So we don't, we, we know the rough location of the plantation. And then we know that the, um, the tier nine supplier above that is the starch processor. So for us, yes, there's a risk, but the, the problem kind of just opened up even bigger, right? It's, mm -hmm. there is a risk. We can find it down our supply chain, which we don't have relationships to get down there. So that's going to require a new way to problem solve and collaborate to get there. Um, but the other side was that that finding opened it up. Well, how, how, do, how do we identify this? Um, how do we change our audit program to find it? What should we really do? And what we wanted to do there, or what we decided to do was look at the academic research. What we need to look for is people's education levels. Wherever you have a job that doesn't require a bachelor's degree or some sort of license or certificate, you have vulnerable people, whether it's in the US or it's you know, in South Africa, the people that don't have the, the abilities to go anywhere and get a job, mm -hmm. those, are, those are the ones you wanna look for. So for Roche that turned it, the, the, the algorithm and looking for education levels really kind of turned it for us so that we could then look at it by industry and say, okay, this supplier, at, at this level, they're not gonna have a big educational requirement. So we're not really looking for the big ones. We're looking for smaller. We're looking for the ones where we can really make an impact where that's gonna happen. So with that, we looked at Genentech South San Francisco site as the pilot for our first series of audits. And we talked to uh, landscaping and construction and caterers and childcare workers. These are the people that come onto our campuses that are truly at risk of, you know, modern slavery, but also just basic human rights violations. Are they being paid appropriately? You know, we looked at it in California because right here in the Bay Area where I live, you've got a population of roughly 20,000 individuals in some form of forced labor, you know, whether it's sexual trafficking or forced labor trafficking. That's the truth of the world. We've got a and that's a, that's in it that's in a you know uh, the United States so yeah that's a, which you would imagine you know in a big city like San Francisco you'd imagine that that doesn't happen so the fact that you're looking to. even in your backyard yeah is we, we have to that's how you have to to if you're really putting something behind it and you're not just going uh, it's it's not a tick the box exercise for us a lot of our peers will stop with the non-OECD countries. So they're not looking at the U.S. They're not looking at Europe because, and- They're not I, high risk in theory. Yeah, in theory, but that's not in practice. So we, we did that. We adjusted our audit framework uh, so that we could make sure that, so what we do when we audit for human rights violations as part of our process is we select employees at random from that supplier. Mm -hmm. We bring them into a room and we don't allow management in there. And we use auditors that have uh, what's called an SA 8000 qualification. Mm -hmm. So they have the ability to kind of uh, sit down with somebody and establish trust really, really quickly. And so we have these conversations and we were able to prove 
during that pilot audit at Genentech that in fact our algorithm and our auditing process works because the employees let us know of a, a sub sub supplier that we had no idea even existed that was actually a, a supplier of I think it was dishwashers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, subcontractor, but we need to go ensure how those folks are being treated. So we have now implemented that across the board and every year my team looks for the suppliers that we have within our, you know, house that we can really make an impact on. And we've even, you know, done some additional audits in certain areas of the world where there's very public concern right now. And we adjusted our process to go in there and, and look at it when we know that, huh, we're going into another country and this is a very systematized thing that they're doing in this country. We're worried about the individual. So how do we get around all of the politics and, and making sure that we're not going to, you know, come on the wrong side of these things and yet still look for human rights. So that's, that's, Sorry, it went went a little deep there, but that's where no, we no, no. It's 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 a deep topic. I mean, it's a big it's a big topic, and the fact that you're, you know, first of all, the fact that Roche has someone like you in house looking at this is very important. I was I'm blown away by the fact that you had someone do a mapping of your you know suppliers into the ten plus tiers. I mean, that uh, there are a lot of supply chain leaders today that aren't doing that in general. You know, for their top tier. Um, but what, what role do you think your suppliers play in helping you achieve your objectives? Oh, my God. It, it's, it's tremendous. So if we're talking just environmental footprint, that is 94%. Our, our scope three, which is the things that are purchased goods, um, you know, that's 94% of our environmental footprint. Our suppliers are incredibly important in that. Because one with scope three, uh, most people tend to stay at the high level promises, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you drill down into this, it's, it's problematic. You yeah. have to worry about measurement because most of the measurement is based on spend and, and not actual re-emissions, real emissions. You have the, the problem of scope. You know, if I'm, we have 67,000 tier one suppliers. And supply well, chain. Just gonna, I, I, I was just going to say, you know, you've got 67,000 tier one suppliers. Then when you start to think about their suppliers and, mm -hmm. and so forth, you're talking about a scale that is just unheard it's, of, you know? It's massive. And, and that's why Roshan and Marielle Byer and, and Patrick Folk, um, they invested in my team. So I'm one of the only teams that does what mine does and, and there are 14 of us so we do everything from strategy to auditing but it's all with this idea of driving real world change and controlling for human behavior while at the same time it's strategic because we do have financial targets it's not that yeah. Roche has said yes we, we can just invest drop everything. those we yeah let's drop those and let's become a humanitarian organization this yeah. is a you know let's be realistic let's be truthful here this it's is a business. business looking to make profit you know but it doesn't mean that you can not hit these goals but yeah you you just what you do then is you provide a better process right so if we right. want to do sustainability uh projects on any topic from modern slavery to greenhouse gas reduction my team is creating frameworks, so methodologies, templates. Here's the process for how you would do it. 
but we're also using things like social value calculators, materiality assessments, so that when procurement talks about sustainability, there's a direct correlation to business value. So right. if we're coming up with a project, um, my, my favorite one, and it's one that we've kind of talked about a bit in public is greenhouse gas reduction through how cows are fed. Not a topic that most people would think of coming from a pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. But when we did that, you know, first level spend analysis, we saw that in Pennsburg, Germany, where we've got both pharma and dye manufacturing, highest greenhouse gas emission at the site was methane. Mm -hmm. Everybody's blown away because people like to go to the low hanging fruit. Oh, it's business travel. Well, no, actually, not yeah. if you're really looking at it. And uh, all of our methane was coming from bovine plasma factors. So we buy cow blood that goes into diagnostics and goes into R&D. But when you buy that, so pharmaceutical grade cow blood has to be taken from living cows. Mm -hmm. And we can only take it from dairy cattle because of the way that they're fed. And when you take anything from a living animal, the greenhouse gas accounting is for that annual animal to continue life. So, you know, leather, right. shoes, all of this, that happens after. Um, but for us, when we're buying it, that's why the emissions footprint is so huge because the cow needs to continue living and, and breathing. And most of the methane from cows is from their belching. So they mm -hmm. burp all of that mm -hmm. horrible greenhouse gas. So we went in and looked and we're like, okay, well, what can we do just on any front? What, what could a possible solution be? And we got into looking at cattle feed. So there's an amazing uh, seaweed called asparagopsis, and it's been being researched for the past six or seven years. You turn it into syrup, pour it over cattle feed, and it reduces cattle's belching by 98%, according to the Washington Post's article for December 2020. So what Roche would have to do with it is, okay, how do we collaborate with our peers who also buy bovine plasma factor, but also... How do we upscale the production? How do we make this, you know, now we want sustainable cattle feed because the impact is very, very real. We're talking about pharmaceutical and the dairy industry because we have to use that. And the side benefit for asparagopsis, the seaweed, is it makes cows produce more milk. You know, it was... The research was so the knock-on effect is, is actually beneficial to another industry, which speaks to, again, this whole collaborative effort that we're talking about, you know, yeah. how you can collaborate with other other organizations to actually help drive home some of the, uh, you know, some, some of your goals and objectives. Um, what's been your biggest challenge? Well, you, you probably, ooh, there's probably a long list. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just gonna, there's probably a long list, but think of a few. I, you know, I, I think realistically, the, in, the entire thing has been a challenge, right? Because yeah. I've not only, it's not just how do we address this, but part of what I've done since 2019 is transform the function that actually allows us to deliver it strategically. So I think it's been challenging to get buy-in for looking at sustainability from a strategic perspective, from not not from Roche leadership, but oftentimes it's a shock the ground. to other people in procurement. Yeah. Um, what do you mean? Why should I be looking at that? Or or even some of our you know classic divisions within Roche, where they've always considered that they have the final word on environment. But when you 
operationalize a system that has to look at at least 67,000 uh, suppliers, you have to have an aligned approach. So we, we kind of call it the one Roche approach. That's, I think, the, the challenge to build because people's identities get wrapped up in this is my role, this is my remit, and you have to bring them up to talking about outcomes. You know, I, I am not here to take anything from you, but I can help you deliver that theory you've been working on. I can help you actually put this into practice, but we have to collaborate. It's got to focus on data and it has to focus on process because no matter, you know, how good our intentions, if it can't work in the real world, everything just falls apart. So those are, it, it's challenging, I guess, the simplest way to put it. I was going to say it's any transformation is challenging. Mm -hmm. And really what you're talking about is transforming business processes, business um, uh, formats, even, you know, just just in general, transforming a different type of uh, business environment where you think about things, roles, um, everything changes, really. I mean, that is one of the key opportunities, perhaps coming out of the this, this crisis of COVID is that we're going to hopefully emerge with newer, more uh, robust, sustainable, transparent um, business models, maybe? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we have to. Business is the root cause of a lot of the, the social and environmental problems that we're having in some way, shape, or form. Um, because the, as much as governments are important, at the end of the day, I think we can all acknowledge the role that business and capitalism plays Mm. in every single part of our society so i think it's just but you know sorry it's just yes i agree with you wholeheartedly but i think it's so um i don't know it's so positive at least i'm going to come away from this conversation in a positive way feeling that business and or capitalism and sustainability and ethical uh business can go hand in hand. They're not sort of Absolutely. diametrically opposed, which is, I think, to some degree, what might the resistance might be. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's showing people that the world can be another way, hmm. you know, uh, and, and all of those belief uh, systems that we build around our jobs, who we are in our jobs, what our jobs do. So, we, and we have to both change people's minds, but show real world evidence that this in fact can work if we do business this way, if we make sure that sustainability is embedded throughout our decision process with suppliers, but also that we start collaborating as businesses to really deliver the social change that we all want. And, you know, for the global multinational businesses, that means being able to work across uh, countries, across ethnicities, belief systems, uh, how individual governments work and create a larger framework where yes, no matter where Roche operates, we're gonna be looking at human rights. We are going to be looking at that with our suppliers. We're gonna be trying to find ways to improve the system so that society benefits and and with greenhouse gas reduction and, and environmental footprint and environmental stewardship, it's the same thing. You know, I may not have every single piece of it, but I know the people. So if we all kind of uh, combine, if there are five of us that all have some separate 
piece of this, but we can combine on one process, then that's how you attack it at scale. You know, you want to leverage it. It's not about one person or one uh, business within a business having the answers to everything. It's knowing how to get there. It's knowing how to find the solution, knowing how to to network, to, to really network, not just um, connect people for discrete periods of time, but to actually build a relationship network so that, yeah. you know, Roche knows if we want to work on this topic, we can call up one of our pharmaceutical peers or we can go to one of our really big suppliers and collaborate with them to take it all the way down. So, you know, where I started with the cassava farming in Thailand, it's still on my radar that we need to get down to that plantation. We need to know who that starch processor is. But first, we're going to go to our tier one. And now that my team in global procurement has so much more data and information and, and people that can operationalize how we do this, now we can have a conversation with that supplier and say, look, we found this. We want to get down there together. We know that you don't want to have this risk for you. So how, how do we collaborate and not make it punitive and, and that we're building? I think that's the balance that you have to strike. And that's why we look for materiality assessments and business cases. You know, what, what can Roche impact? Uh, what, what should we own and what can we work with suppliers or what should we be leveraging another body to kind of push forward? Mm -hmm. You know, Kelly, what's going through my mind is to ask you this question is, is um, I mean, it's, it's very inspiring that you've got leadership at board level that is very interested or invested in driving forward this kind of, um, um, I guess, driving forward this kind of ethos, this kind of way of working all the way through your enterprise. A lot of companies don't have that. But if, if I'm going to be cynical for just a minute, let's mm -hmm. be a little bit cynical, because no doubt some people will be listening, thinking, Okay, that's great. That's lovely. But no one's going to really support this in my business. We're busy. We're, you know, COVID. And a lot of people are hiding behind the COVID thing. So I, my question's in two parts. One, do you think that COVID has slowed down to some degree the conversation around supply chain transparency and visibility and ethics and sustainability? Uh, and two, do you think there's an element of risk involved for companies that don't implement this kind of behavior within their businesses moving forward? In other words, the role that the consumer has in asking for this? That Those are my two-part questions. Okay, no, no, very, very good question. So I think number one, COVID didn't slow it down, it accelerated it. You know, for the pharmaceutical industry, you know, I've given the example of just one of our products and what that supply chain looks like. So I think that for the, for pharma, it accelerated existing transparency discussions because there's long been looks at uh, different governments have due diligence requirements where they're wanting us to look in our supply chain. And what COVID did was show us, held a mirror up and said, this is exactly what you can see and, and can't see. And some pharmaceutical companies got luckier than others in that. But now we all know that we have a very big problem where we need to collaborate and start looking and, and actually have a transparent supply chain. So for Roche, what COVID helped us uh, finalize the argument for was putting in a full supply chain mapping system. 
so that we could in, in real time, you know, that we can look across and know what our risks are, what are our pain points, because it, it changed, I think, it, everything that way. And, and also it sort of accelerated the ethical behavior conversations because once the world started looking at supply chains, then they were and looking did, at- And they did, and the world is looking yeah. at supply chain. Yeah, and, and all of the problems that are coming from different manufacturing. So I think it's COVID has been a good thing in that respect for making us really focus on it. Um, And then the second part of your question, absolutely, that's a risk. There is no, um, I, I see no other alternative for the future, but for businesses to address sustainability as part of their risk profile, mm-hmm. because, you know, um, if we put it this way, I like to use California right now as an example. So we have, uh, we do business in California, we have sites in California, but we also have suppliers in California. Climate change means that, you know, starting last month, we have rolling black wildfires and the wildfires and in the wildfires. And we have an incredible drought. Uh, and, and we had already pumped out so much groundwater from California's aquifers that the state uh, went down in ele- elevation by an inch from the last oh, wow. drought. So we've got none of that. And then on top of it in California, we have initiatives like diversity and inclusion, where for the U.S., those are actually defined in the tax codes. So we know what diversity is in, in the United States because we defined it in tax code. Other countries of the world don't have that. So just in, for doing business in California, you have to be able to manage the risk of when your supplier is not going to have power and potentially water, whether they're going to be in a fire zone, um, also how COVID has affected them. Um, and then you need to be looking at, you know, are we properly supporting the suppliers that we want to work with because they're, they're diverse? You know, if you, we've got a supplier in Lodi that we're looking at working with, how do we support them when they're small and they're a startup and they're in a fire zone and they're going to go without power, right? That, that is sustainability and that is risk all in one bucket. And that's just looking at California. There's also, California will have a requirement for greenhouse gas uh, disclosure that goes into effect in 2022. And it's unique in all of the world because it's wanting scope one, two, and three reporting that has been audited by an official third-party auditor. So it is very, sustainability is very much embedded in how business is done. We've got three different European supplier-facing due diligence initiatives that are coming up. Um, There's Switzerland's the Responsible Business Initiative. We have the Lieferkettengesetz coming Mm -hmm. out of Germany and uh, the European Due Diligence uh, Initiative, which is looking at the company's value chains, all of its suppliers, all of human rights, and all topics of the environment. And they also have conflict mineral requirements, which raises questions about, you know, not only the scope, how many tiers into our supply chain are we going to be held responsible for, and, and how do we need to go and report, and how do we do that? But it is going to bring, I, I think, to a very big discussion point, how we're looking at things ethically. So for instance, when you look at solar panels and electric vehicles, um, 
absolutely we need to have renewable energy but right now there are in my view unacceptable human costs in some the way some suppliers do this so you have to look at mining a lot of suppliers in those spaces have addressed it but you know is this sustainable mining to get these conflict minerals that then go into the solar panels or the electric vehicles and, these and that, that's but that's looking deep into your supply chain which is what you're right. what you're doing asking those questions looking deep I, I think what i also wanted to raise was just the risk associated with the power of the consumer at the moment you know mm -hmm. so what i mean by that is that reputational risk can be well, reputations can be destroyed very quickly Absolutely. Uh, you know and i think that uh, that's what i'm i guess i'm asking do you think that companies that sort of I don't know, I want to say bury their head in the sand, but just sort of look the other way, are at risk for, you know, opening themselves up to something that could cost their business dramatically? Uh, well, here, here's where my cynical answer is going to come into place. I think that, yes, there, there's absolutely a business cost. And there are just some companies who have very strong legal and marketing departments that are not getting flagged for their ethical or, or lack of ethical behavior the way they should around sustainability. So that's kind of where I think that conversation is going to come to a head is there are you know companies that can demonstrate how we're attacking this and, and will be able to meet these standards. But there are companies that use marketing and a heavy legal department who are operating in these, you know, high risk spaces, it, it's going to depend on if they're going to get held to account by the consumers. Because right now, um, I, I'm I'm completely dancing around the company that I would say is an example. So forgive me for that, but I don't. No, wanna, no, I, you know. I, 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 we don't want to go into that. But I think there no. there are companies that perhaps are playing there with fire are. to, you know. Um, yeah. On that note, Kelly, you know, I could talk to you for hours and I think we'd love to have you back again to talk a little bit more about the processes that you implemented and the kind of things that we can do that supply chain and procurement leaders can do to make um, these kinds of changes real. Uh, but in the meantime, I want to thank you for being here and thank you for sharing your story. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And I hope to join you again sometime. And for those of you listening to us at home, we will catch you again on the next one. Thanks so much. Thank you.